the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. God in His amazing power and mercy had set the Israelites free from their bondage in Egypt. He had walked them every step of the way for 40 years, even when they had rebelled against Him. They had experienced His abundant provision and seen God fight on their behalf, giving them victories against the Moabites and Amalekites on the east side of the Jordan River. They were on the verge of entering into the land promised them. Moses now warns them not to forget God and His word when good times come. We join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1. Follow through in driving out those seven nations that were in the promised land. And while he's urging them and warning them, you can sense the concern in his words. Every indication, though, as we read through Deuteronomy, is that he believes this generation will succeed where the previous one failed. Remember the previous generation, the one that came out of Egypt, they died in the wilderness because they didn't trust the Lord. But he believes this generation will succeed. Even though he's warning them, he believes that. But with that presumed success comes another temptation, the temptation of thinking they accomplished it themselves. See, we're funny creatures, aren't we? The Lord says we can do nothing apart from him, right? And we sing about how we desperately need him. We come in all our songs and talk about we need the Lord. Lord, I need you. We need him. We sing about it. But then when everything's going good, we either forget him or ascribe our success to our own doing. And as we see Moses tell Israel not to make that mistake tonight, might we take it to heart so that we stay humble And we stay dependent upon Jesus in all seasons, especially prosperous ones. So tonight we're going to talk about how to survive prosperity. Now, some of you may be getting up to leave right now. You're going, I've never experienced that and probably won't. But I think that's different for each of us. We go through seasons of great need and then we go through seasons where the Lord is taking care of us and he's blessing us. And the idea here is that when you don't see those pressing needs, that's what Moses is referring to. And so we're going to talk about how to survive those seasons tonight. So chapter 8, verse 1, Moses says... All the commandments which I command you this day shall you observe to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers. Remember that word observe. He says you shall observe to do it. It means to exercise great care and concern. It's not something you do nonchalantly. It's not something you do just kind of as a side thing. This is something we really invest in. And this verse, it connects everything that's already been said. In these first seven chapters, Moses has been telling Israel all that God had done for them. God loves you so much. This is what God's done for you. Now I want you to love him back by keeping his commandments. And he says here, if you do that, Israel, you'll be so blessed. You'll multiply, you'll live, you'll go and possess the land that the Lord promised to your fathers. But when that happens and they experience those blessings, they must be careful to do something else that's very important. Remember how they got here, which is the first key to surviving prosperity. We must remember how God's been faithful. He says in verse two, and you shall remember 
You shall remember. The word there, remember, it's not just to not forget. It means to recall events from the past and respond appropriately in the present. In other words, it's not just that we have something as a picture on the wall that reminds us of what God did, but we have it running in our mind with regularity. It means we really ponder what God did and we're acting today, now, in light of it. This is one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? When we celebrate the bread and the cup. We celebrate the Lord's Supper because it's easy to get busy, right? It's easy to neglect our relationship with the Lord. It's easy to get sidetracked. It's easy to become petty. It's easy to become hurt or frustrated with other people. But when we remember God's love and leaving the perfection of heaven to become a man to die for our sins, it puts everything in proper perspective again, right? When we remember and reflect on that, we look at our present and everything comes back into perspective. In the Lord's Supper, I remind myself, you know, even though I'm busy, to take time for my relationship with the Lord. I remind myself, since he gave everything for me, to take time for him. We rededicate ourselves in that time to putting him first. We choose to forgive others and to make things right with others because we've been forgiven so much more, right? That's why it's important to remember. Like Israel, we think, okay, the Lord's Supper reminds us of our salvation, so God brought them up out of Egypt, but that's not what Moses is referring to here. Our story didn't stop with our rescue from our Egypt, from our sin. It includes remembering how God has led them and led us every step of the way to this place. For he says, you shall remember all the way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Moses reminds Israel that God did so much more than just rescue them from Egypt. He carried them the entire distance from Egypt to here. Whether you've been saved for two months or two years or 20 years, you're a different person now, right, than when you were before you got saved. Praise the Lord, right? We're different. The longer we've been walking with the Lord, though, the easier it is to forget just how far he's led us, just how much he's done for us. The easier it becomes, When we talk about here, he led them through the wilderness for 40 years. That wilderness experience, the New Testament talks about it, that that's kind of our flesh-centered life. The desert represents that. People say, oh, the promised land, it's heaven. Like, when I cross over Jordan, I'll be with Jesus. Well, no, the promised land doesn't represent heaven at all. They crossed over the Jordan. What was waiting for them? Walled cities, giants, armies, temptation. There'll be none of that in heaven. So the promised land does not represent heaven. The promised land represents the life of the Spirit, where we're overcoming sin and we're learning to trust the Lord more. And I would ask you this evening, as you have, obviously we thank the Lord for our salvation, but do we take time to thank the Lord for all the things he's rescued us from after we got saved? Do we take the time regularly to do that? Because he's still rescuing us, isn't he? Sometimes you read those passages in the New Testament and it says we are being saved. And we're like, people get confused. And if you came from a legalistic background, there may be people who might, your pastor, or teacher, or priest may have told you and said, this is why you're not saved by faith alone. No, 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 that's not what the scripture's talking about. Salvation encompasses more than just our past. It encompasses our present and our future. Concerning our past, all of our sins have been washed away. Concerning our present, we are being sanctified, being made more like Jesus every day. And concerning my future, someday I'm going to shed this old thing with its sin nature, and I'm going to get a new body that never sins, never grows old, never dies. So I'm always being rescued by the Lord. The idea here is, do we take the time to remember and thank the Lord for all the things he rescues us from even still? After telling them to remember all the way that God brought to them, Moses says, explains, to humble you, to prove you, and to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. What does that have to do with this? 
Why do they need to remember that? See, after telling them to remember what God had done for them in the past, Moses is explaining here why God didn't wipe them out when they weren't faithful. He's explaining here why God disciplined Israel by taking them through the wilderness for 40 years instead of destroying them right there when they rebelled. And the reason is, is because God wanted them to change. Yes, they were rebellious. Yes, they were proud. But God wanted them to change. And how would he accomplish this? Three ways. To humble them, to test them, and to know what was in their heart, whether they would keep his commandments or not. That word humble there, the first way, how God sought to change Israel in the desert, it means to afflict. So it's not to humble in the sense to teach you to not be proud. It's to afflict. It means to place in a state of trouble or distress. We should always recognize our need to depend on the Lord, right? Always. But trouble and distress, they kind of accentuate that recognition, don't they? (laughs) Right? You're like, I need you, God! You know, when you're in that moment when things aren't good. But when things are good, it's kind of easy to just kind of go through the motions. We're walking through life, you know, where I got this thing now, I got my routine, God set me up, I'm good now, right? But when trouble comes, the Lord afflicts us, then we're in that place of trouble and, and we know, oh man, I need the Lord. Now, when Israel came to the edge of the promised land, they're right there. God had done everything. He gave them the law in Sinai, brought them into a covenant relationship with him. And there they are on the edge, ready to go into the land. And what do they do? They say, no, Lord, we can't do it. They've got giants. They've got innumerable armies. They've got walled cities. We can't do this. And they rebel against the Lord. Now, the Lord, he could have just wiped them out right there, but he doesn't. And he allowed them to go through difficulties in the desert. Why? Well, why did they mess up in the first place? Well, see, Israel, when they defied the Lord, remember they were threatening to stone Joshua and Caleb because what were Joshua and Caleb urging them to do? Trust the Lord. Go into the land. God can do this. Who cares about the armies? Who cares about the giants? Who cares about walled cities? We can take it. God's with us. Trust the Lord. And they were picking up stones, getting ready to stone them until the Lord intervened. See, not only that, but after God disciplined them and said, you're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness, what did they do? Oh, we'll go into the promised land now. See, here's the thing. We look at that, and it's almost like, like a child. We look at a child. You say, you know, listen, I told you to do your chores, and if you didn't do your chores, you'd lose some privileges, and, you know, you didn't do them, and so now you're going to lose some privileges. I'll do my chores right now. I'll do my chores right now. Here's the problem. The big problem with all this, it's not that they didn't do the chores. It's there's this prideful thing inside them that says, I don't need to do what mom and dad say, which ultimately is what? I don't need to obey the Lord. See, it comes down to pride. My way's okay. My way's fine. And that was the problem with Israel. See, they started off like, we can't do this. I'm looking at us. We can't defeat these people. But then afterwards, the Lord's like, well, you know, you're going to go in the wilderness now for 40 years. And they're going, okay, well, maybe we can do this. Maybe we can take the walled cities and the giants. And, you know, we can do this. Either one, it was pride. Both of them were pride. And that was the problem here. They were prideful and they didn't know it. They didn't know it. So these troubles that they would experience in the desert, whether it was needing food or whether it was getting attacked by other people or whether it was going around in circles or taking the long way or the Edomites not trading with them, all of those troubles were designed to show them the pride behind that rebellion so that they would humble themselves and trust the Lord for everything. You know, not only do we need to remember all that God's done for us if we're gonna survive good times, secondly, we need to remember how God has disciplined us in the past and learn from it. God will throw discipline your way every time you need it. But if you don't learn from it, you're not benefiting from it. The first way, God brought trouble. The second way, he was seeking to change them in the desert, how he disciplined them, is it says here, through proving them. The word there, prove, it means to test. It means to attempt to learn the true nature of something. Now, 
God already knows the true nature of, of us, right? Like, he already knows our hearts. So when he tests me, it's so I can learn what's really in my heart, so I can learn what the true nature of my heart. See, Israel's actions at the edge of the promised land proved their pride, but could they see it? No, that's why they said, oh, we can do it afterwards. I know you said wander in the desert, Lord, but I think we can take it now. We've changed our mind. We've thought about it. We can do it. They didn't even see the problem was their pride. They thought the problem was the Lord. And that's what we see all throughout the book of Numbers, right? God, why'd you bring us out here to kill us? Their problems were God's fault or Moses' fault. They put the blame on everyone but themselves. But the wilderness experience with all of its troubles, all of its afflictions, would show them what was really going on, that the problem was me. The problem was them. The third way God sought to change them was he said that you might know what is in your heart. Now, while that might seem similar to testing or attempting to learn the true nature of something, that doesn't necessarily fix the problem. Had God like ever showed you something in your life that you finally realized the problem's me? It's not my wife, it's not my kids or my job or my boss or whatever. It's not the economy, it's not the government, it's not the president, it's not whoever, you know, it's not France. It's me, it's me. But then what do you do at that point in time? Or how do I fix me? That's what this part is here. The word there to know, it means to learn, to learn what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Again, God didn't even know it was in their hearts. I love the passage in John 2, 24, when Jesus, he clears out the temple the first time, clears it out, and they're like, by what authority do you do this? And he talks about raising the temple again in three days, and of course, he's talking about his body. But it says that people began to commit to him and flocked him at that moment. It was Jesus' first big moment down south at the very beginning of his ministry. But it mentions that Jesus did not commit himself to them, for he knew what was in man. God knows what's in my heart. He knows exactly what's there, but I don't. I don't even know my own heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says that the heart, it is deceitful, desperately wicked. Who can know it? 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things. What's the most deceitful, most trickster thing out there that you could ever, ever think of? More than that is your own heart. It will trip you up more than anything else. That's why the whole idea, like Disney and PBS, follow your heart, reject it. It's like the devil, follow your heart. That's what gets me in trouble all the time. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I can't even know my own heart. So the wilderness experience and all of its trials would show Israel what they needed to repent of so that even though they couldn't go into the promised land, they could live the rest of their lives in a good relationship with the Lord. How did God do all these things? Well, Moses gives them and reminds them of a few examples. They need to remember how God disciplined them, but now he's going to show them some of those ways. And he's going to cover each one of these things. So the first thing is how he afflicted them. And he afflicted them with a troubling food supply. Verse 3. And he humbled you and suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you knew not. Neither did your fathers know that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. Now that sounds kind of stinky, right? Like God allowed Israel to run out of food. I mean, that doesn't sound like, why would God do that? <laughs> he needed to afflict them so that they could change. God allowed Israel to run out of food so they would recognize that he was their source and depend upon him. Now, did God answer their need for food? You bet. It says here that he suffered you to hunger and fed you with manna. But here's the key, which you knew not. Listen, if Israel had sat down and said, okay, guys, we are out of food. We need to come up with a solution to feed 2 million people. 
Where are we going to get it? I don't think anybody in the room was going, um, I got a thought. I got an idea. What are the odds that God just rains down bread from the sky every day? What about that solution? No one was doing that, <laughs> okay? This had never happened in history before. There was no precedent. And that's why it's never a good use of time trying to figure out how God will take care of your need. We sweat the how, don't we? Like we know God's got the promise there, but we sweat the how. (laughs) It's never a good use of time trying to figure that out. God has plans that you would never even think of on your own. Even if you got all of the smartest people in the world to brainstorm for you, he has ideas that you could never dream up. In fact, part of truly being dependent upon God is trusting him with the method of provision, not just the fact that he'll provide, especially when that method makes you uncomfortable. I remember when the economy crashed, I'd been a full-time pastor for seven years, and uh, I had to go back into the workforce, and that was rough, man. It was rough for multiple reasons. One, I would now have to have two jobs, because it wasn't like I was going to do less at the church. I was going to be exhausted. And then second, my degree's in Bible. It's not like you go to Martin Marietta and be like, hi, I'd like a job. What's your degree in? Bible, man. I'm ready to go. My asking salary is these six figures. I mean, that doesn't fly. So I had to go back to, I had been a GM for Chick-fil-A. That job wasn't available anymore. So now I had to go back and be an assistant manager. I was very blessed to get that job. But man, I would walk into that store every day. I'd be so angry. I would see people who would come in, people from the community I knew, people I went to high school with. Oh, what are you doing here? I thought you were pastoring. Well, I am pastoring. Oh, what happened? Well, you know, the economy. As I smell like chicken look like chicken. I hated that place. You have to trust him with the method. Crazy thing was, that was one of the greatest learning environments for me that I'd had in a long time because it humbled me, taught me to trust him, depend upon him, taught me to be content, taught me to have joy, flipping chicken, taught me to have joy, you know, when my pride was welling up, taught me to just rest in him, to recognize the value of all work. It humbled me. Things I didn't know I even had issues with that I wouldn't have found out unless I had had to do that. And that's the key here. God isn't just providing for your needs. He's trying to teach us something important. And he tells Israel here, God disciplined you like this, not just to to show you he'd provide for you, that he was your source for food, but to show you he's your source for everything, that he might make you to know that man does not live by bread only, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord does man live. And what's interesting is Jesus quoted this when Satan tempted him, right? When Satan tempted him to turn the rocks into bread. And of course, Jesus could have done that. He's God. He could have said rocks to bread or just thought it and rocks have been bread and eat and be fine. But that would have defeated the whole purpose of why he went into the desert. He went into the desert to succeed in being yielded to the Lord where Adam and sadly Israel had failed. He went in the desert to trust that God would meet his hunger need when the time was right. And you know what? That piece of knowing you're in the center of God's will, even when you're hungry, because that's where he took you, that piece is the piece that's better than understanding in Philippians chapter four. The piece that passes understanding, right? I never understood what that meant until years ago when I I started thinking. It's a piece that surpasses. It's a piece that excels understanding. It's a piece that's better than knowing. Like there's a piece you can have that's better than knowing how it's gonna work out. That's what God wants to do in our lives. In addition to this trouble with food, not only did God bring this affliction to bring their awareness that they would just rest in him all the time, God had another situation that he tested them with. He tested them through a clothing issue. And so we see here in verse four, he says, your raiment did not wax old upon you, neither did your foot swell those 40 years. I am not a clothing or fashion person. I don't like to buy new clothes. Let me rephrase that. I don't like to spend my money on new clothes. 
I figure the money could be better spent than on keeping me up to date with humanity and its fashion styles. But after 40 years, even I would have to get new clothes and new shoes and would have to spend money. Israel didn't. I'm sure at some point during those 40 years in the desert, someone asked, "Eh, where are we going to get new clothes when these things wear out? It would only be the reasonable thing to think, right? There wasn't like a Target, you know, camel caravan that came through the Sinai Peninsula. Amazon was still using pigeons at that time. They did have this. God said he would take care of them, right? God said he'd take care of them. And this now would serve as a test of whether they'd trust that. See, if they struggled with trusting God, it would reveal that they were still proud. The same pride that was there when they rebelled and didn't go into the promised land, the same pride that caused them to go out on the Sabbath day to look for manna when God said, no, I'll give you two days worth the day before. The same pride that he said, it's going to rot overnight. I'll, I'll give you your fresh manna every day. But the first day they went and they got extra because they didn't think it'd be there. The same pride here, would they trust that God would just take care of their clothes supernaturally, that he would meet the need. And if they would, it would give them an opportunity to repent and draw closer to the Lord. And I'm sure some did, but many just complained. And so God had to discipline them further. And why did God do that? Well, the third way that he was trying to change them, not only by afflicting them with trouble, not only by testing them to show them their own heart, but thirdly, that they would learn what they needed to repent of. Verse five, you shall also consider in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. Again, that word consider means you need to take time and care to know something. You need to ponder this, that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. Now, how is a man supposed to chasten his son? Well, the word chasten there, it means to teach or correct in order to teach someone or to correct someone in order to change their bad behavior. We discipline our children to teach them that what they've done is wrong and to help them do the right thing in the future. That's why we discipline our kids. We do not discipline them because we're annoyed enough to do something about their behavior finally. We don't discipline them because we want all the families in church to think we're good parents. We don't discipline our children because that makes life easier for us. In fact, discipline, I discovered, is never for the benefit of the person doing the disciplining. Never. Like, discipline isn't about you. It's not for you. My dad used to say, you know, he said, this will hurt me more than it hurts you. First off, that was a lie. But I understood what his point was. There are times when you're sitting there as a parent and you're like, there they go again. It's already been like eight times today. I have nothing else to take away from them. Banish them from their room, I guess. I don't know. What else do you do? You know, you're just not getting through. There are times you just be like, you know what? I don't care. They're going to be a brat. Let them be a brat. Click. Just watch the TV. It's not about me. You have to pick yourself up. There was a time with one of our kids when, you know, Beverly looked at me. She's like, you need to go talk to them. And I was like, nope, I don't want to. I don't like them very much right now. And at this point, they've been so stubborn and whatever, I just really don't care. Now, not my brightest moment as a father, but that's how I felt. Now I'm sitting there in the bedroom because that's where we had had our little thing thingaming. They're in their room because that's where they need to stay because I don't want to see them. But as I'm sitting there, the Lord's like, really? You're making this about you. And, and you know, Bev had been telling me, you know, we're the parents. God gave us to them. We're to serve them. We're to minister to them. It's not about us. It's not about our frustration, our hurt, whatever. And I'm sitting there and the Lord's dealing with me. Eventually, you know, I got up and, you know, ministered to the child. But the idea is, is it's not about us. It's not for our benefit. It's for the benefit of the person being disciplined. See, time and time again, God got upset at the Lord's discipline instead of using it as an opportunity to learn that something ugly was in their heart that caused their wicked behavior. And so God would allow these opportunities to, for them to examine their hearts. He would show them what was really in their heart so that they would learn from it and know what they needed to repent of. 
regarding parenting before we can even get into how we respond to the Lord. You know, do you discipline your children with this mindset, with the right mindset for their benefit, not for yours? You know, if you're not, then you need to repent. Your goal isn't to make kids that are acceptable to society. Your goal is to train a child in the way that he should go, to cultivate their heart. We're with kids, with our own kids or other people's kids, and I'm I'm trying to deal with them. I'm doing counseling with them. I'm trying to figure out, like, what's the real problem here? Like, the real problem is not the behavior. There's something deeper than that that's causing the behavior. And my job is to help them see that and learn that. And are you doing that as a parent? But, you know, if you're looking for help right now, I would really encourage you, strongly encourage you to read the book, Shepherding a Child's Heart. It is a great book on parenting. If you have teenagers, they've written a book that's called Age of Opportunity. And, you know, so many times we talk about teenagers as frustrating times. This guy, the brothers that wrote the book, they premise in there, no, it's an age of opportunity. It's an opportunity to discipline and train your child. And so we need to take advantage of that and not look at it as a burden upon us. As regards God's discipline, do you respond to God's discipline like Israel? Do you despise it? Or are you open to God's correction? We need to be open to God's correction. It can be so easy to forget how far God has taken us. To look back and not only see that God was blessing us and providing for us, but that even His discipline in our lives was an act of kindness and love, drawing us closer to Him. We must remember from where God has taken us, not to wallow in self-pity, but to stand in awe that God's hand was mighty to save, even a wretch like me. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.